The Life of Milton by Edward Phillips. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Milton, 1694. Of all the several parts of history, that which sets forth the lives and commemorates the most remarkable actions, sayings, or writings of famous and illustrious persons, whether in war or peace, whether many together or any one in particular, as it is not the least useful in itself, so it is in highest vogue and esteem among the studious and reading part of mankind. The most eminent in this way of history were, among the ancients, Plutarch and Diogenes Laertius of the Greeks. The first wrote the lives, for the most part, of the most renowned heroes and warriors of the Greeks and Romans, the other the lives of the ancient Greek philosophers. And Cornelius Nepos, or as some will have it, Emilius Probus, of the Latins, who wrote the lives of the most illustrious Greek and Roman generals. Among the moderns, Machiavel, a noble Florentine, who elegantly wrote the life of Castruccio Castracana, Lord of Lucca. And of our nation, Sir Fulk Greville, who wrote the life of his most intimate friend, Sir Philip Sidney. Mr. Thomas Stanley, of Camberlo Green, who made a most elaborate improvement to the foresaid Laertius, by adding to what he found in him, what by diligent search and inquiry he collected from other authors of best authority. And Isaac Walton, who wrote the lives of Sir Henry Wotton, Dr. Dunn, and for his divine poems, the admired Mr. George Herbert. Lastly, not to mention several other biographers of considerable note, the great Gassendus of France, the worthy celebrator of two no less worthy subjects of his impartial pen, viz. the noble philosopher Epicurus, and the most politely learned virtuoso of his age, his countryman, Monsieur Pierresque. And pity it is, the person whose memory we have here undertaken to perpetuate, by recounting the most memorable transactions of his life, though his works sufficiently recommend him to the world, finds not a well-informed pen able to set him forth, equal with the best of those here mentioned. For doubtless, had his fame been as much spread through Europe in Thuanus's time as now it is, and hath been for several years, he had justly merited from that great historian an eulogy not inferior to the highest by him given to all the learned and ingenious that lived within the compass of his history. For we may safely and justly affirm that, take him in all respects, for a cumin of wit, quickness of apprehension, sagacity of judgment, depth of argument, and elegancy of style, as well in Latin as English, as well in verse as prose, he is scarce to be paralleled by any the best of writers our nation hath in any age brought forth. He was born in London, in a house in Bread Street. The lease whereof, as I take it, but for certain it was a house in Bread Street, became in time part of his estate. In the year of our Lord, 1606, note, 1603, return to text. His father, John Milton, an honest, worthy, and substantial citizen of London, by profession a scrivener, to which he voluntarily betook himself by the advice and assistance of an intimate friend of his, eminent in that calling, upon his being cast out by his father, a bigoted Roman Catholic, for embracing when young the Protestant faith, and abjuring the Popish tenets. For he is said to have been descended of an ancient family of the Miltons, of Milton near Abingdon in Oxfordshire, where they had been a long time seated, as appears by the monument, still to be seen in Milton Church, till one of the family, having taken the wrong side in the contest between the houses of York and Lancaster, was sequestered of all his estate 
but what he held by his wife. However, certain it is that this vocation he followed for many years at his said house in Bread Street, with success suitable to his industry and prudent conduct of his affairs. Yet he did not so far quit his own generous and ingenious inclinations as to make himself wholly a slave to the world, for he sometimes found vacant hours to the study, which he made his recreation, of the noble science of music, in which he advanced to that perfection that, as I have been told, and as I take it by our author himself, he composed an innomine of forty parts, for which he was rewarded with a gold medal and chain by a Polish prince, to whom he presented it. However, this is a truth not to be denied, that for several songs of his composition, after the way of these times, three or four of which are still to be seen in old Wilby's set of airs, besides some compositions of his in Ravenscroft's Psalms, he gained the reputation of a considerable master in this most charming of all the liberal sciences. Yet all this while he managed his grand affair of this world with such prudence and diligence that by the assistance of divine providence, favoring his honest endeavors, he gained a competent estate, whereby he was enabled to make a handsome provision both for the education and maintenance of his children. For three he had, and no more, all by one wife, Sarah, of the family of the Castons, derived originally from Wales, a woman of incomparable virtue and goodness. John, the eldest, the subject of our present work, Christopher, and an only daughter, Anne. Christopher, being principally designed for the study of the common law of England, was entered young a student of the inner temple, of which house he lived to be an ancient venture, and keeping close to that study and profession all his lifetime, except in the time of the civil wars of England, when, being a great favourer and asserter of the king's cause, and obnoxious to the Parliament's side, by acting to his utmost power against them, so long as he kept his station at Reading. And after that town was taken by the Parliament forces, being forced to quit his house there, he steered his course according to the motion of the king's army. But when the war was ended with victory and success to the Parliament party, by the valour of General Fairfax and the craft and conduct of Cromwell, and his composition made by the help of his brother's interest with the then prevailing power, he betook himself again to his former study and profession, following chamber practice every term. He had came to no advancement in the world in a long time, except some small employ in the town of Ipswich, where, and near it, he lived all the latter time of his life, for he was a person of a modest, quiet temper, preferring justice and virtue before all worldly pleasure or grandeur. But in the beginning of the reign of King James the Second, for his known integrity and ability in the law, he was by some persons of quality recommended to the king, and at a call of sergeants received the coif, and the same day was sworn one of the barons of the exchequer, and soon after made one of the judges of the common pleas. But his years, and indisposition, not well brooking the fatigue of public employment, he continued not long in either of these stations, but having his quietus est, retired to a country life, his study and devotion. Anne, the only daughter of the said John Milton the Elder, had a considerable dowry given her by her father, in marriage with Edward Phillips, the son of Edward Phillips of Shrewsbury, who, coming up young to town, was bred up in the crown office in Chancery, and at length came to be secondary of the office under old Mr. Benbow. By him she had, besides other children that died infants, two sons, yet surviving, 
of whom more hereafter, and by a second husband, Mr. Thomas Agar, who, upon the death of his intimate friend Mr. Phillips, worthily succeeded in the place, which except some time of exclusion before and during the interregnum he held for many years, and left it to Mr. Thomas Milton, the son of the aforementioned Sir Christopher, who at this day executes it with great reputation and ability, two daughters, Mary, who died very young, and Anne, yet surviving. But to hasten back to our matter in hand, John, our author, who was destined to be the ornament and glory of his country, was sent, together with his brother, to Paul's school, whereof Dr. Gill the elder was then chief master, for he was entered into the first rudiments of learning, and advanced therein with that admirable success, not more by the discipline of the school and good instructions of his masters, for that he had another master, possibly at his father's house, appears by the fourth elegy of his Latin poems written in his eighteenth year to Thomas Young, pastor of the English company of merchants at Hamborough, wherein he owns and styles him his master, then by his own happy genius, prompt wit and apprehension, and insuperable industry, for he generally sate up half the night, as well in voluntary improvements of his own choice as the exact perfecting of his school exercises. So that at the age of fifteen, note, he had completed his sixteenth year, return to text. He was full ripe for academic learning, and accordingly was sent to the University of Cambridge, where, in Christ's College, under the tuition of a very eminent learned man, whose name I cannot call to mind, he studied seven years, and took his degree of Master of Arts, for the extraordinary wit and reading he had shown in his performances to attain his degree, some whereof, spoken at a vacation exercise in his nineteenth year of age, are to be yet seen in his miscellaneous poems. He was loved and admired by the whole university, particularly by the fellows and most ingenious persons of his house. Among the rest, there was a young gentleman, one Mr. King, with whom, for his great learning and parts, he had contracted a particular friendship and intimacy, whose death, for he was drowned on the Irish seas in his passage from Chester to Ireland, he bewails in that most excellent monody in his forementioned poems, entitled Lysippus. Never was the loss of a friend so elegantly lamented, and among the rest of his juvenile poems, some he wrote at the age of fifteen, which contain a poetic genius scarce to be paralleled, by any English writer. Soon after he had taken his master's degree, he thought fit to leave the university, not upon any disgust or discontent for want of preferment, as some ill-willers have reported, nor upon any cause whatsoever forced to fly, as his detractors maliciously feign, but from which aspersion he sufficiently clears himself in his second answer to Alexander Morris. Note, first answer, return to text the author of a book called Clamor Regii Sanguinis Ad Caelum, the chief of his calumniators, in which he plainly makes it out that after his leaving the university, to the no small trouble of his fellow collegiates, who in general regretted his absence, he for the space of five years lived for the most part with his father and mother at their house at Horton, near Coldbrook in Berkshire, whither his father, having gotten a state to his content and left off all business, was retired from the cares and fatigues of the world. After the said term of five years, his mother then dying, he was willing to add to his acquired learning the observation of foreign customs, manners, and institutions, 
and thereupon took a resolution to travel, more especially designing for Italy. Note. There is great confusion in all the biographers of Milton respecting the period of his travels, and this confusion originates with Milton himself. He left Cambridge on taking his degree of Master of Arts in 1632. He assigns five years as the interval in which he lived at home with his father and mother, and his mother died in 1637, upon which he set out on his travels. Thus far, the story is consistent. But Milton goes on to inform us that his travels occupied a space of fifteen months, and that he returned to England about the time of King Charles's second expedition against the Scots. Eodem ferme tempera, quo carvus cum scotis, rupta pace, bellum altum quod vocat episcopale, redintegravat, in quo fusis primo congressu regiis copiis, malacoactus, non sponte, parlamentum auditum multo post convocale. This can refer to no other period than the rout at Newburn, August 1640, and Milton can less be suspected of an erroneous statement in these last two dates than the former. The result is that a period of two years, from the spring 1637 to the spring 1639, is passed over in his narrative unnoticed. It was probably spent like the former years at Horton. Return to text. And accordingly, with his father's consent and assistance, he put himself into an equipage suitable for such a design, and so, intending to go by the way of France, he set out for Paris, accompanied only with one man, who attended him through all his travels, for his prudence was his guide, and his learning, his introduction, and presentation to persons the most eminent quality. However, he had also a most civil and obliging letter of direction and advice from Sir Henry Wharton then Provost of Eton, and formerly resident ambassador from King James I, to the State of Venice, which letter is to be seen in the first edition of his miscellaneous poems. At Paris, being recommended by the said Sir Henry and other persons of quality, he went first to wait upon my Lord Scudamore, then ambassador in France from King Charles I. My Lord received him with wonderful civility, and understanding he had a desire to make a visit to the great Hugo Grotius, he sent several of his attendants to wait upon him, and to present him in his name to that renowned doctor and statesman, who was at that time ambassador from Christina, Queen of Sweden, to the French king. Grotius took the visit kindly, and gave him entertainment suitable to his worth, and the high commendations he had heard of him. After a few days, not intending to make the usual tour of France, he took his leave of my lord, who, at his departure from Paris, gave him letters to the English merchants, residing in any part through which he was to travel, in which they were requested to show him all the kindness, and do him all the good offices that lay in their power. From Paris he hastened on his journey to Nicaea, where he took shipping, and in a short space arrived at Genoa, from whence he went to Leghorn, thence to Pisa, and so to Florence. In this city, he met with many charming objects which invited him to stay a longer time than he intended. The pleasant situation of the place, the nobleness of the structures, the exact humanity and civility of the inhabitants, the more polite and refined sort of language there than elsewhere. During the time of his stay there, which was about two months, he visited all the private academies of the city, which are places established for the improvement of wit and learning, and maintained a correspondence and perpetual friendship among gentlemen 
fitly qualified for such an institution, and such sort of academies there are in all or most of the most noted cities in Italy. Visiting these places, he was soon taken notice of by the most learned and ingenious of the nobility, and the grand wits of Florence, who caressed him with all the honours and civilities imaginable, particularly Jacopo Gatti, Garolo Dati, Antonio Francini, Frescobaldo, Cultellino, Bonmattei, and Clementillo, whereof Gatti, note, it should be Francini, return to text, hath a large, elegant Italian cantonet in his praise, and Dati, a Latin epistle, both printed before his Latin poems, together with a Latin distich of the Marquis of Villa, and another of Savaggi, and a Latin tetrastic of Giovanni Salcini, a Roman. From Florence, he took his journey to Siena, from thence to Rome, where he was detained much about the same time he had been in Florence, as well by his desire of seeing all the rarities and antiquities of that most glorious and renowned city, as by the conversation of Lucas Holstinius and other learned and ingenious men, who highly valued his acquaintance and treated him with all possible respect. From Rome he travelled to Naples, where he was introduced by a certain hermit who accompanied him in his journey from Rome thither, into the knowledge of Giovanni Battista Manso, Marquis of Villa, a Neapolitan by birth, a person of high nobility, virtue, and honour, to whom the famous Italian poet Torquato Tasso wrote his treatise De Amicitia, and moreover mentions him with great honour in that illustrious poem of his entitled Gerusalemme Liburata. This noble Marquis received him with extraordinary respect and civility, and went with him himself to give him a sight of all that was of note and remark in the city, particularly the Viceroy's palace, and was often in person to visit him at his lodging. Moreover, this noble Marquess honoured him so far as to make a Latin distich in his praise, as hath been already mentioned, which, being no less pity than short, though already in print, it will not be unworth the while here to repeat. Ut mens, forma, decor, facies, mos, si pietas sic, non anglus, verum hercle angelus ipsiforis. Note on the phrase si pietas sic. This word relates to his being a Protestant, not a Roman Catholic. E.P. Return to text. In return of this honour, and in gratitude for the many favours and civilities received of him, he presented him at his departure with a large Latin eclogue, entitled Mansus, afterwards published among his Latin poems. The Marquess, at his taking leave of him, gave him this compliment, that he would have done him many more offices of kindness and civility, but was therefore rendered incapable in regard he had been over-liberal in his speech against the religion of the country. He had entertained some thoughts of passing over into Sicily and Greece, but was diverted by the news he received from England that affairs there were tending towards a civil war. Thinking it a thing unworthy in him to be taking his pleasure in foreign parts while his countrymen at home were fighting for their liberty, but first resolved to see Rome once more. And though the merchants gave him a caution that the Jesuits were hatching designs against him in case he should return thither, by reason of the freedom he took in all his discourses of religion, nevertheless he ventured to prosecute his resolution, and to Rome the second time he went determining with himself not industriously to begin to fall into any discourse about religion, but being asked not to deny or endeavour to conceal his own sentiments. Two months he stayed at Rome, and in all that time never flinched, 
but was ready to defend the orthodox faith against all opposers and so well he succeeded therein that with providence guarding him he went safe from rome back to florence where his return to his friends of that city was welcomed with as much joy and affection as had it been to his friends and relations in his own country he could not have come to a more joyful and welcome guest here having stayed as long as at his first coming excepting an excursion of a few days to lucca crossing the apennine and passing through bononia and ferrara he arrived at venice where when he had spent a month's time in viewing of that stately city and shipped up a parcel of curious and rare books which he had picked up in his travels particularly a chest or two of choice music books of the best masters flourishing about that time in italy namely luca morenzo monteverdi horatio vecchi cifa the prince of venosa and several others he took his course through verona milan and the puinine alps and so by the lake lima to geneva where he stayed for some time and had daily converse with the most learned giovanni del dati theology professor in that city and so returning through france by the same way he had passed it going to italy he by a peregrination of one complete year and about three months arrived safe in england about the time of the king's making his second expedition against the scots soon after his return and visits paid to his father and other friends he took him a lodging in st bride's churchyard at the house of one russell a tailor where he first undertook the education and instruction of his sister's two sons the younger whereof had been wholly committed to his charge and care and here by the way i judge it not impertinent to mention the many authors both of the latin and greek which through his excellent judgment and way of teaching far above the pedantry of common public schools where such authors are scarce ever heard of were run over within no greater compass of time than from ten to fifteen or sixteen years of age of the latin the four grand authors de Rebustica, cato varro colomella and palladius cornelius celsus an ancient physician of the romans a great part of pliny's natural history vitruvius his architecture frontinus his stratagems together with the two egregious poets lucretius and manilius of the greek hesiod a poet equal with homer aratus his phenomena and diosemia dionysius author de situ orbis Oppian's Kinegetics and Haliotics, Quintus Caliber, his poem of the Trojan War, continued from Homer, Apollonius Rhodius, his Argonautics, and in prose, Plutarch's Placata Philosophorum and Peripython Aurorius. Seek. Yemenus's Astronomy, Xenophon's Kiri Institutio and Anabasis, Elian's Tactics, and Paulinus, his warlike stratagems. Thus, by teaching, he in some measure increased his own knowledge, having the reading of all these authors, as it were, by proxy. And all this might possibly have conduced to the preserving of his eyesight, had he not, moreover, been perpetually busied in his own laborious undertakings of the book or pen. Nor did the time thus studiously employed in conquering the Greek and Latin tongues hinder the attaining to the chief Oriental languages, viz. the Hebrew, Chaldee, and Syriac, so far as to go through the Pentateuch, or five books of Moses, in Hebrew, to make a good entrance into the Targum, or Chaldee paraphrase, and to understand several chapters of St. Matthew in the Syriac Testament, besides an introduction into several arts and sciences, by reading Aristitius, his arithmetic, Griff's geometry, 
Petiscus, his trigonometry, Ioannis de Sacrobosco de Sfira, and into the Italian and French tongues by reading in Italian Giovanni Villani's History of the Transactions between Several Petty States of Italy, and in French a great part of Pierre de Viti, the famous geographer of France in his time. The Sunday's work was, for the most part, the reading each day a chapter of the Greek Testament, and hearing his learned exposition upon the same, and how this savoured of atheism in him I leave to the courteous backbiter to judge. The next work after this was the writing from his own dictation, some part from time to time, of a tractate which he thought fit to collect from the ablest of divines who had written of that subject, Amesius, Olybius, etc., viz., a perfect system of divinity, of which more hereafter. Now, persons so far manducted into the highest paths of literature, both divine and human, had they received his documents with the same acuteness of wit and apprehension, the same industry, alacrity, and thirst after knowledge, as the instructor was endued with, what prodigies of wit and learning might they have proved? The scholars might in some degree have come near to the equaling of the master, or, at least, have in some sort made good what he seems to predict in the close of an elegy he made in the seventeenth year of his age, upon the death of one of his sister's children, a daughter, who died in her infancy. Then thou, the mother of so sweet a child, her false imagined loss cease to lament, and wisely learn to curb thy sorrows wild. This if thou do, he will an offspring give that till the world's last end shall make thy name to live. But to return to the thread of our discourse, he made no long stay in his lodgings at St. Bride's churchyard, necessity of having a place to dispose his books in, and other goods fit for the furnishing of a good handsome house, hastening him to take one, and accordingly a pretty garden house he took in Aldersgate Street, at the end of an entry, and therefore the fitter for his turn by reason of the privacy besides that there are few streets in London more free from noise than that. Here first it was that his academic erudition was put in practice, then vigorously proceeded, he himself giving an example to those under him, for it was not long after his taking this house, ere his elder nephew was put to board with him also, of hard study and spare diet. Only this advantage he had, that once in three weeks or a month he would drop into the society of some young sparks of his acquaintance, the chief whereof were Mr. Alfred and Mr. Miller, two gentlemen of Gray's Inn, the beaux of those times, but nothing near so bad as those nowadays. With these gentlemen he would so far make bold with his body as now and then to keep a gaudy day. In this house he continued several years. In the one or two first whereof he set out several treatises, viz. that of Reformation, that against the Latical Episcopacy, the Reason of Church Government, the Defense of Smectinius, at least the greater part of them, but as I take it all, and some time after one sheet of education, which he dedicated to Mr. Samuel Hartlib, he that wrote so much of husbandry. This sheet is printed at the end of the second edition of his poems. And lastly, Ariopagitica. During the time also of his continuance in this house, there fell out several occasions of the increasing of his family. His father, who, till the taking of Reading by the Earl of Essex's forces, had lived with his other son at his house there, was, upon that son's dissettlement, necessitated to betake himself to this, his eldest son, with whom he lived for some years, even to his dying day. In the next place he had an addition of some scholars, to which may be added his entering into matrimony, 
but he had his wife's company so small a time that he may well be said to have become a single man again soon after about whitsuntide it was or a little after that he took a journey into the country nobody about him certainly knowing the reason or that it was any more than a journey of recreation after a month's stay home he returns a married man but went out a bachelor his wife being mary the eldest daughter of mr richard powell then a justice of peace of forest hill near shotover in oxfordshire some few of her nearest relations accompanying the bride to her new habitation which by reason the father nor anybody else were yet come was able to receive them where the feasting held for some days in celebration of the nuptials and for entertainment of the bride's friends at length they took their leave and returning to forest hill left the sister behind probably not much to her satisfaction as appeared by the sequel by that time she had for a month or thereabout led a philosophical life after having been used to a great house and much company and joviality her friends possibly incited by her own desire made earnest suit by letter to have her company during the remaining part of the summer which was granted on condition of her return at the time appointed which was michaelmas or thereabout in the meantime came his father and some of the forementioned disciples and now the studies went on with so much the more vigour as there were more hands and heads employed the old gentleman living wholly retired to his rest and devotion without the least trouble imaginable our author now as it were a single man again made it his chief diversion now and then in the evening to visit the lady margaret lee daughter to the blank lee earl of marlborough who had been lord high treasurer of england and president of the privy council to king james the first this lady, being a woman of great wit and ingenuity, had a particular honour for him, and took much delight in his company, as did likewise her husband, Captain Hobson, a very accomplished gentleman. And what esteem Milton at the same time had for her appears by a sonnet he made in praise of her, which is to be seen among his other sonnets in his extant poems. Michaelmas being come, and no news of his wife's return, he sent for her by letter, and receiving no answer sent several other letters which were also unanswered so that at last he dispatched down a foot messenger with a letter desiring a return but the messenger came back not only without an answer at least a satisfactory one but to the best of my remembrance reported that he was dismissed with some sort of contempt this proceeding in all probability was grounded upon no other cause but this namely that the family being generally addicted to the cavalier party as they called it and some of them possibly engaged in the king's service who by this time had his headquarters at oxford and was in some prospect of success they began to repent them of having matched the eldest daughter of the family to a person so contrary to them in opinion and thought it would be a blot in their escutcheon whenever that court should come to flourish again however it so incensed our author that he thought it would be dishonourable ever to receive her again after such a repulse so that he forthwith prepared to fortify himself with arguments for such a resolution and accordingly wrote two treatises by which he undertook to maintain that it was against reason and the enjoyment of it not provable by scripture for any married couple disagreeable in humour and temper or having an aversion to each other to be forced to live yoked together all their days the first tract was his doctrine and discipline of divorce of which there was printed a second edition with some additions the other in prosecution of the first was styled tetracorda then the better to confirm his own opinion by the attestation of others 
he set out a piece called the judgment of martin Luther, a protestant minister being a translation out of that reverend divine of some part of his works exactly agreeing with him in sentiment lastly he wrote in answer to a pragmatical clerk who would needs give himself the honour of writing against so great a man his cholesterium or rod of correction for a saucy impertinent not very long after the setting forth of these treatises having application made to him by several gentlemen of his acquaintance for the education of their sons as understanding happily the progress he had fixed by his first undertakings of that nature he laid out for a larger house and soon found it out but in the interim before he removed there fell out a passage which though it altered not the whole course he was going to steer yet it put a stop or rather an end to a grand affair which was more than probably thought to be then in agitation it was indeed a design of marrying one of dr davis's daughters a very handsome and witty gentlewoman but averse as it is said to this motion however the intelligence hereof and the then declining state of the king's cause and consequently of the circumstances of justice powell's family caused them to set all engines on work to restore the late married woman to the station wherein they a little before had planted her at last this device was pitched upon there dwelt in the lane of st martin's le grand which was hard by a relation of our author's one blackborough whom it was known he often visited and upon this occasion the visits were the more narrowly observed and possibly there might be a combination between both parties the friends on both sides concentering in the same action though on different behalves one time above the rest he making his usual visit the wife was ready in another room and on a sudden he was surprised to see one whom he thought never to have seen more making submission and begging pardon on her knees before him he might probably at first make some show of aversion and rejection but partly his own generous nature more inclinable to reconciliation than to perseverance in anger and revenge and partly the strong intercession of friends on both sides soon brought him to an act of oblivion and a firm league of peace for the future and it was at length concluded that she should remain at a friend's house till such time as he was settled at his new house at barbican and all things for her reception in order the place agreed on for her present abode was the widow weber's house in st clement's churchyard whose second daughter had been married to the other brother note christopher milton returned to text many years before the first fruits of her return to her husband was a brave girl born within a year after though whether by ill-constitution or want of care she grew more and more decrepit but it was not only by children that she increased the number of the family for in no very long time after her coming she had a great resort of her kindred with her in the house viz her father and mother and several of her brothers and sisters which were in all pretty numerous who upon his father's sickening and dying soon after went away and now the house looked again like a house of the muses only though the accession of scholars was not great possibly his proceeding thus far in the education of youth may have been the occasion of some of his adversaries calling him pedagogue and schoolmaster whereas it is well known he never set up for a public school to teach all the young fry of a parish but only was willing to impart his learning and knowledge to relations and the sons of some gentlemen that were his intimate friends Note. There is something beautiful 
in the generosity with which Edward Phillips here sets himself to vindicate his uncle against the aspersions of his adversaries, as it is certain that the writer was a schoolmaster, and, by the representation of Anthony Wood, probably set up for a public school to teach all the young fry of a parish. The sentiment is, my kinsman, the great man whose merits I am commemorating, was far from being the insignificant person that I, his historian, am. I am in my proper place when I make the education of youth my daily employment and my profession. But he was a man of a different standard and belonging to another class of intelligences. Nor is it just that terms and ideas sufficiently descriptive of my destination should be applied to one who is scarce to be paralleled by any the best of writers our nation hath in any age brought forth. Return to text. Besides, that neither his converse, nor his writings, nor his manner of teaching ever savoured in the least anything of pedantry, and probably he might have some prospect of putting in practice his academical institution, according to the model laid down in his sheet of education, the progress of which design was afterwards diverted by a series of alteration in the affairs of state. For I am much mistaken if there were not about this time a design in agitation of making him adjutant-general in Sir William Waller's army. But the new modelling of the army soon following proved an obstruction to that design, and Sir William, his commission being laid down, began, as the common saying is, to turn cat in pan. It was not long after the march of Fairfax and Cromwell through the city of London with the whole army, to quell the insurrections which Brown and Massey, now become malcontents also, were endeavouring to raise in the city against the army's proceedings, ere he left his great house in Barbican, and betook himself to a smaller in High Holborn, among those that opened backward in Lincoln's Inn Fields. Here he lived a private and quiet life, still prosecuting his studies and curious search into knowledge, the grand affair perpetually of his life, till such time as the war being now at an end, with complete victory to the Parliament's side, as the Parliament then stood, purged of all its dissenting members, and the King, after some treaties with the army great infecta, brought to his trial, the form of government being now changed into a free state, he was hereupon obliged to write a treatise called The Tenure of Kings and Magistrates. Side note, March, A.D. 1648-49. Return to text. After which, his thoughts were bent upon retiring again to his own private studies, and falling upon such subjects as his proper genius prompted him to write of, among which was the history of our own nation from the beginning till the Norman Conquest wherein he had made some progress. Side note, A.D. 1649, return to text. When, for this his last treatise, reviving the fame of other things he had formerly published, being more and more taken notice of for his excellency of style and depth of judgment, he was courted into the service of this new commonwealth, and at last prevailed with, for he never hunted after preferment nor affected the tintamar and hurry of public business, to take upon him the office of Latin secretary to the Council of State, for all their letters to foreign princes and states, for they stuck to this noble and generous resolution, not to write to any or receive answers from them, but in a language most proper to maintain a correspondence among the learned of all nations in this part of the world, scorning to carry on their affairs in the wheedling, lisping jargon of the cringing French, 
especially as they had a minister of state able to cope with the ablest any prince or state could employ for the latin tongue and so well he acquitted himself in the station that he gained from abroad both reputation to himself and credit to the state that employed him and it was well the business of his office came not very fast upon him for he was scarce well warm in his secretaryship before other work flowed in upon him which took him up for some considerable time in the first place there came out a book said to have been written by the king and finished a little before his death entitled icon basilicon that is the royal image a book highly cried up for its smooth style and pathetical composure wherefore to obviate the impression it was like to make among the many he was obliged to write an answer which he entitled iconoclastes or image breaker and upon the heels of that out comes in public the great kill cow of christendom with his defensio regis contra populum anglicanum note this title everyone will see to be a misstatement no man ever professed to write against a people for their governors the proper title is defensio regia pro carlo primo ad carlum secundum returned to text a man so famous and cried up for his plinian exercitations and other pieces of reputed learning that there could nowhere have been found a champion that durst lift up the pen against so formidable an adversary had not our little english david had the courage to undertake this great french goliath to whom he gave such a hit in the forehead that he presently staggered and soon after fell for immediately upon the coming out of the answer entitled defensio populi anglicani contra claudium anonymum etc he who till then side note a d sixteen fifty one returned to text had been chief minister and superintendent in the court of the learned christina queen of sweden dwindled in esteem to that degree that he at last vouchsafed to speak to the meanest servant in short he was dismissed with so cold and slighting an adieu that after a faint dying reply he was glad to have recourse to death the remedy of all evils and ender of all controversies side note a d sixteen fifty two return to text and now i presume our author had some breathing space but it was not long for though salmatius was departed he left some stings behind new enemies started up barkers though no great biters who the first asserter of salmatius his cause was is not certainly known but variously conjectured at some supposing it to be one janus a lawyer of gray's inn some to be dr bramall who was made by king charles the second after his restoration archbishop of armagh in ireland but whoever the author was the book was thought fit to be taken into correction and our author not thinking it worth his own undertaking to disturbing the progress of whatever more chosen work he had then in hand committed this task to the younger of his two nephews but with such exact emendations before it went to the press that it might have very well passed for his but that he was willing the person that took the pains to prepare it for his examination and polishment should have the name and credit of being the author so that it came forth under this title linus philippi angli defensio pro populo anglicano contra etc side note a d 1652 footnote this title is given from memory and inaccurately return to text during the writing and publishing of this book he lodged at one thompson's next door to the bullhead tavern at charing cross opening into the spring garden 
which seems to have been only a lodging taken till his designed apartment in Scotland Yard was repaired for him. For hither he soon removed from the forsake place, and here his third child, a son, was born, which, through the ill usage or bad constitution of an ill-chosen nurse, died an infant. From this apartment, whether he thought it not healthy or otherwise convenient for his use, or whatever else was the reason, he soon after took a pretty garden-house in petty France in Westminster, next door to the Lord Scudamore's, and opening into St. James's Park. Here he remained no less than eight years, namely, from the year 1652 till within a few weeks of King Charles II's restoration. In this house, his first wife, dying in childbed, he married a second, who, after a year's time, died in childbed also. This his second marriage was about two or three years after his being wholly deprived of sight, which was just going about the time of his answering Salmatius, whereupon his adversaries gladly take occasion of imputing his blindness as a judgment upon him for his answering the king's book, etc. Footnote, Regii Sanguine Clamor, 1652, return to text. Whereas it is most certainly known that his sight, what with his continual study, his being subject to the headache, and his perpetual tampering with physic to preserve it, had been decaying for above a dozen years before, and the sight of one, for a long time, clearly lost. Here he wrote by his amanuensis his two answers to Alexander Moore, who, upon the last answer, quitted the field. So that, being now quiet from state adversaries and public contests, he had leisure again for his own studies and private designs. Side note, A.D. 1655, return to text, which were his foresaid history of England and a new thesaurus linguae latinae, according to the manner of Stephanus, a work he had been long since collecting from his own reading, and still went on with it at times, even very near to his dying day. But the papers after his death were so discomposed and deficient that it could not be made fit for the press. However, what there was of it was made use of for another dictionary. But the height of his noble fancy and invention began now to be seriously and mainly employed in a subject worthy of such a muse is a heroic poem, entitled Paradise Lost, the noblest in the general esteem of learned and judicious persons of any yet written by any either ancient or modern. This subject was first designed to be produced to the world in the form of a tragedy, and in the fourth book of the poem there are six verses, which several years before the poem was begun were shown to me and some others as designed for the very beginning of the said tragedy. The verses are these. O thou, that with surpassing glory crowned, Look'st from thy sole dominion like the god of this new world, At whose sight all the stars hide their diminished heads, To thee I call, but with no friendly voice, And add thy name, O sun, to tell thee how I hate thy beams, That bring to my remembrance from what state I fell, how glorious once above thy sphere, till pride and worse ambition threw me down, warring in heaven against heaven's glorious king. There is another very remarkable passage in the composure of this poem, which I have a particular occasion to remember. For whereas I had the perusal of it from the very beginning, for some years, as I went from time to time to visit him in a parcel of ten, twenty, or thirty verses at a time, which, being written by whatever hand came next, might possibly want correction as to orthography and pointing. 
having as the summer came on not been showed any for a considerable while and desiring the reason thereof was answered that his vein never happily flowed but from the autumnal equinoctial to the vernal and that whatever he attempted otherwise was never to his satisfaction though he courted his fancy never so much so that in all the year he was about this poem he may be said to have spent but half his time therein it was but a little before the king's restoration that he wrote and published his book in defence of a commonwealth so undaunted he was in declaring his true sentiments to the world and not long before his power of the civil magistrate in ecclesiastical affairs and his treatise against hirelings just upon the king's coming over having a little before been sequestered from his office of latin secretary and the salary thereunto belonging he was forced to leave his house also in petty france where all the time of his abode there which was eight years as above mentioned he was frequently visited by persons of quality particularly by my lady rainlaw whose son for some time he had instructed and by all learned foreigners of note who could not part out of the city without giving a visit to a person so eminent and lastly by particular friends that had a high esteem for him viz mr andrew marvell young lawrence the son of him that was president of oliver's council to whom there is a sonnet among the rest in his printed poems mr marchamont needham the writer of politicus but above all mr syriac skinner whom he honoured with two sonnets one long since public among his poems the other but newly printed his next removal was by the advice of those that wished him well and had a concern for his preservation into a place of retirement and abscondence till such time as the current of affairs for the future should instruct him what farther course to take it was a friend's house in bartholomew close where he lived till the act of oblivion came forth which it pleased god proved as favourable to him as could be hoped or expected through the intercession of some that stood his friends both in council and parliament particularly in the house of commons mr andrew marvell a member for hull acted vigorously in his behalf and made a considerable party for him so that together with john goodwin of coleman street he was only so far accepted as not to bear any office in the commonwealth soon after appearing again in public side note 1662 return to text he took a house in holborn near red lion fields where he stayed not long before his pardon having passed the seal he removed to jewin street there he lived when he married his third wife recommended to him by his old friend dr paget in coleman street but he stayed not long after his new marriage ere he removed to a house in the artillery walk leading to bunhill fields and this was his last stage in this world but it was of many years continuance more perhaps than he had had in any other place besides here he finished his noble poem and published it in the year sixteen sixty six the first edition was printed in quarto by one simons a printer in aldersgate street and a second in a large octavo by starkey near temple bar amended enlarged and differently disposed as to the number of books by his own hand that is by his own appointment and a third has been set forth many years since his death in a large folio with cuts added by jacob tonson here it was also that he finished and published his history of our nation till the conquest all complete so far as he went side note he published his history of england in the year sixteen seventy return to text 
some passages only being excepted which being thought too sharp against the clergy could not pass the hand of the licenser were in the hands of the late earl of anglesey while he lived where at present is uncertain it cannot certainly be concluded when he wrote his excellent tragedy entitled samson agonistes but sure enough it is that it came forth after his publication of paradise lost together with his other poem called paradise regained which doubtless was begun and finished and printed after the other was published and that in a wonderful short space of time considering the sublimeness of it however it is generally censured to be much inferior to the other though he could not hear with patience any such thing when related to him possibly the subject may not afford such variety of invention but it is thought by the most judicious to be little or nothing inferior to the other for style and decorum the said earl of anglesey whom he presented with a copy of the unlicensed papers of his history came often here to visit him as very much coveting his society and converse as likewise others of the nobility and many persons of eminent quality nor were the visits of foreigners ever more frequent than in this place almost to his dying day his treatise of true religion heresy schism and toleration etc was doubtless the last thing of his writing that was published before his death he had as i remember prepared for the press an answer to some little scribbling quack in london who had written a scurrilous libel against him but whether by the dissuasion of friends as thinking him a fellow not worth his notice or for what other cause i know not this answer was never published he died in the year sixteen seventy three towards the latter end of the summer footnote november eighth sixteen seventy four return to text and had a very decent interment according to his quality in the church of st giles cripplegate being attended from his house to the church by several gentlemen then in town his principal well-wishers and admirers he had three daughters who survived him many years and a son all by his first wife of whom sufficient mention hath been made and his eldest as above said and mary his second who were both born at his house in barbican and deborah the youngest who is yet living born at his house in petty france between whom and his second daughter the son named john was born as above mentioned at his apartment in scotland yard by his second wife catherine the daughter of captain woodcock of hackney he had only one daughter of which the mother the first year after her marriage died in childbed and the child also within a month after by his third wife elizabeth the daughter of one mr minshall of cheshire and kinswoman to dr patchett who survived him and is said to be yet living he never had any child and those he had by the first he made serviceable to him in that very particular in which he most wanted their service and supplied his want of eyesight by their eyes and tongue for though he had daily about him one or other to read to him some persons of man's estate who of their own accord greedily catched at the opportunity of being his readers that they might as well reap the benefit of what they read to him as oblige him with the benefit of their reading others of younger years sent by their parents to the same end yet excusing only the eldest daughter by reason of her bodily infirmity and difficult utterance of speech which to say the truth i doubt was the principal cause of excusing her the other two were condemned to the performance of reading and exactly pronouncing of all the languages of whatever book he should at one time or other think fit to peruse viz the hebrew and i think the syriac the greek 
the Latin, Italian, Spanish, and French, all which sorts of books, to be confined to read without understanding one word, must needs be a trial of patience almost beyond endurance, yet it was endured by both for a long time. Yet the irksomeness of this employment could not always be concealed, but broke out more and more into expressions of uneasiness, so that at length they were all, even the eldest also, sent out to learn some curious and ingenious sorts of manufacture that are proper for women to learn, particularly embroideries in gold or silver. It had been happy indeed if the daughters of such a person had been made in some measure inheritrixes of their father's learning, but since fate otherwise decreed, the greatest honour that can be ascribed to this now living, and so would have been to the others had they lived, is to be the daughter of a man of his extraordinary character. He is said to have died worth fifteen hundred pounds in money, a considerable estate, all things considered, besides household goods, for he sustained such losses as might well have broke any person less frugal and temperate than himself, no less than two thousand pounds, which he had put for security and improvement into the excise office, but neglecting to recall it in time, could never after get it out with all the power and interest he had in the great ones of those times, besides another great sum by mismanagement and for want of good advice. Thus I have reduced into form and order whatever I have been able to rally up, either from the recollection of my own memory of things transacted while I was with him, or the information of others equally conversant afterwards, or from his own mouth by frequent visits to the last. I shall conclude this history with two material passages which, though they relate not immediately to our author or his own particular concerns, yet, in regard that they happened during his public employment of Latin secretary to the Council of State of the Commonwealth of England, and consequently felt most especially under his cognizance, it will not be amiss here to subjoin them. The first was this. Before the war broke forth between the states of England and the Dutch, the Hollanders sent over three ambassadors in order to an accommodation. But they returning re infecta, the Dutch sent away a plenipotentiary to offer peace upon much milder terms, or at least to gain more time. But this plenipotentiary could not make such haste, but that the Parliament had procured a copy of their instructions in Holland, which were delivered by our author to his kinsman, who was then with him, to translate for the council to view, before the said plenipotentiary had taken shipping for England, and an answer to all he had in charge lay ready for him before he made his public entry into London. In the next place, there came a person with a very sumptuous train, pretending himself an agent from the Prince of Condé, who was then in arms against Cardinal Mazarin. The Parliament, mistrusting him, set their instruments so busily at work that in four or five days they had procured intelligence from Paris that he was a spy from King Charles. Whereupon, the very next morning our author's kinsman was sent to him, with an order of counsel commanding him to depart the kingdom within three days, or expect the punishment of a spy. By these two remarkable passages we may clearly discover the industry and good intelligence of those times. End of the Life of Milton written by his nephew, Mr. Edward Phillips. Recording by Thomas Cook.